One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. G'day, and welcome to Mr. Apex Podcast. I'm Uncle Steve, and again I'm here in the podcasting room cupboard, finishing off the fiddly bits of this New Year's Day show. We hope you weathered all the revelry without too many hangovers and embarrassing moments, and that you're ready to kick off 2023 with some F1 fun and frivolity. But before we get funny and frivolous, let me remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed slash cupboard slash cardboard box with the kind permission of our other halves. We may be wrong, but we're first. Today's show title is Forbidden F1 Fruit, and we're taking the Wayback Machine out for a spin to venture back through time and space to look at some of the technology breakthroughs that have revolutionised F1 through the years and then been banned for whatever reason. Later, Trumpets and Kyle talk to one of our own Missed Apex patrons, F1 engineer and former Cosworth engine specialist James Wingfield, about the heady days of hot and cold-blown diffusers. But first, Spanner sat down with our resident F1 history buff, Jeff O'Boyle, to look at the early days of F1 ground effects and the amazing Brabham BT46 fan car in particular. I've got to say that this segment really excited me because this car and the six-wheel Tyrrells that preceded it were really responsible for getting me seriously into F1. It was the amazing technology and, of course, the insane speed that did it to me. So let me twist the dials and pull the levers and off we go, back to a time when F1 cars really sucked. Hi everyone, Spanners here. I hope you had a good Christmas and have celebrated a new year that hasn't left you in too much of a muddy pool on the floor, rocking backwards and forwards, asking why you saw the new year in with such ferocity. But sit back and relax because... 
this segment is taking you back into the past. And I have someone who comes onto this show to tell me things, and it's Jeff O'Boyle. How's it going, Jeff? Very well, Spanner. It's Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You are an, a knower of things in the past of Formula One. Well, I, I have access to Google just like anyone else. Uh, I do my best. I, I, I do find myself reminiscing and looking back to the 70s with rose-tinted glasses and to ignore the fact that one in three drivers would generally be wiped out in some horrific fireball uh, and look at the happier times such as this one. See, when you were saying that, I was like, yeah, races were boring back then. But then you made it a lot more macabre. And I'm lucky enough, I think I grew up in an era where uh, a death or a serious injury in Formula One was, was very much a shock. So as someone born in 1980, my first real memory was Imola, Imola 94. Yep. And, and that kind of memory really kind of woke everyone up of my generation. But of course, if you're a lot older than me, like you are probably, Jeff. Look, just I'm only judging by your physical appearance. Yeah, I, I mean, I, time has been, uh, been cruel to me. I'll, I'll, be, I'll give you that. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I do have to look back at the archives for a lot of this stuff as well. I'm not quite as old as my physical appearance or mental um, inability would, would suggest. How often do you go back and watch an old race? I have to say, I've done it very rarely and I've only gone back. I've, I've looked at like some early 90s races or, or maybe like, you know, the beginning of Damon Hill's career. And as interesting as it is to see those those cars and how difficult they seem to be to drive... I, the races weren't as fun as they are now. Yeah, the races weren't as fun. I'm not going to pretend that they were. Sometimes the, the, the field spread was just exceptional. Sometimes mm. you know you can see there's a good reason why points were only awarded down to sixth place because you were lucky if seven seven cars would finish. <laughs> uh, so yeah, sometimes they were they were a bit dull. Um, what I'd like to do is with the F1 TV subscription, I'll go back and look at the season reviews or look at the highlights from races. Mm. And, and that's actually quite, quite good because you still get the the beautiful slow-mos of Jackie Stewart power sliding through, you know, Tamburello or, or whatever. Uh, but you don't have to sit through two hours of, of watching someone win by three and a half minutes. No, and look, you didn't come here to just reminisce in general. But I do, I do like looking back and not just because, you know, we've got a lot of new listeners that are newer fans to Formula One and to add some historical context. I always learn stuff every time you jump on. I, I think I know. I, like, you know, you, you, even when we did... Weber versus Vettel. I go, oh, I remember that. That was only recently. Uh, uh, but you did give me like a really good refresher. And I'd, my absolute favorite thing is uh, as much as you, you take us back in time, you give us all the historical context. My absolute favorite bit is people nitpicking in the YouTube comments. So please, <laughs> if you have any minor corrections for Jeff, just, just stick it in the YouTube comments and make him feel terrible. Yeah, th- thanks for that. But I really appreciate the encouragement you're giving to the to the trolls. That's that's kind. No, uh, yeah, yeah. You're not giving. It's... You're not giving us like a. You know, it's not like an exam where we have to pass an exam at the end. You're giving us a, a feel. You're taking us back in time. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the era we're talking about today, sort of late seventies. I, I was one year old when a lot of this took place, so it's it's not exactly on the tip of my tongue. So we do have to look back and, and research, and I will occasionally get things wrong. It's it's part of the it was part of the charm of Murray Walker for so many years, and and, and um, you know he wasn't subjected to the same sort of online abuse mainly because we didn't have the <laughs> there internet, was no but, internet. Yeah, so um, so yeah, just bear that in mind. If it was good enough for Murray to make the odd shambles, then then please afford me the same. Courtesy. What's the mistake Apex motto? We might be wrong, but we're first today. We're talking about the infamous fan car. Yes, so um, I guess what triggered this this sort of topic uh, this year was um, the Goodwood Hill climb. This year, you might remember ah. there was um, 
a car called the, the McMurty Spearling that absolutely smashed the hill climb record this year by over two seconds. It went up in 38.09, 39.08 seconds. Um, and it was, a, it was an incredible drive. Max Chilton, you know, ex-F1 driver, mm-hmm. you probably remember who, who he was, um, yep. was was at the helm. And it was it was one of the most incredible pieces of, of motor racing footage from 2022. I'd implore I'd, I'd you, to, or I'd, I'd, I'd commend it to you to go and have a look at it. It really is exceptional. And there were two things that were remarkable about that car. The first one was it, it was electric. It's all electric. Um, uh, and, you know, being Irish, I, I still have a, a fairly mild suspicion of electricity. I, I don't think it'll, it'll ever catch on. I think there's nothing wrong with candles. Uh, but they, um, they the second thing... the sun and put it on the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's I, I'm a bit, I sound a bit like a flat earther in this respect, but I don't believe that electricity is real. It's, uh, it's a myth. It's a construct. Um, but anyway, that aside... Um, the the second thing that was exceptional about the McMurty Spearling was yeah. that uh, it had a bloody massive fan stuck on the back of it, um, and the idea was that this fan would would spin at high speed and suck air underneath the car, creating a vacuum and and push the car down into the ground. So it's it's ground effect. It's 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 creating probably as much mm. downforce as a Formula One car at top speed. So it's an exceptional piece of kit. And that got me thinking about the the original F1 fan car, which was the the Brabham BT46B. Um, most listeners will probably have seen pictures of this car in the past. It's it's right up there in terms of its its sort of um, infamy, like the the Tyrrell P34 six wheeler, or yeah. you know the the March 701 with the surfboard nose on it, one of the most hideous cars ever to come out of Formula One. Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, it's, there's an interesting backstory to to the, the to the car itself, and it, it was short lived but hugely successful, which we'll we'll get into. Mm, it, it's this interesting the concept of of ground effect. Obviously, we're we're sort of meant to be going back to that now, so that's why the teams are trying to run nice and low to kind of make this seal underneath the car. So the general idea is if you can have a lower pressure under the car than the air then the car will will try to to fill that vacuum so it's kind of slipstreaming into the ground now that's a horrible description but um i like the fact that you know that like a vacuum cleaner they're actively pushing air out of the back to kind of create the suction does this mean they had to have a kind of a seal around the side to make it work exactly that so um just going back one year in 1977 uh, colin chapman at lotus came up with the idea of applying sort of aerodynamic um, aerospace engineering to F1 cars by having ground effects. So they, the Lotus um, in 1977, the Lotus 78, was the first Formula One car ever to try this. And you've got side skirts down the side of the car. They, they can be made of all sorts of things. And they brush the ground and create a, a seal so that mm. when the, the air is pushed underneath the car, it doesn't escape sideways. It's yeah. forced out the back. Um, and that, that creates this vacuum, this, this ground effect. Um, and in 77, the Lotus wasn't massively successful. So when when the, the Lotus 79, unhelpfully named 79 in 1978, uh, came out in 1978, a lot of the teams were were really surprised by the pace of it. It was an unbelievable car. They launched it at uh, Monaco, I think, um, in 78. So it wasn't unusual back then to have a car launch halfway through a season. Mm. It just it wasn't, wasn't the thing it is today where it's launched in February, you know. So, uh, But it, it was just unbeatable. So the... Um, the the Brabham forty six B that the the fan car was sort of born out of necessity more than anything else. Uh, the the Brabham BT forty six was wasn't a brilliant car in itself, and the problem that Brabham had, the problem that Gordon Murray, the designer, had is that um, it uh, the car itself ran a, a, a an Alfa Romeo flat V twelve engine. 
pretty powerful. It was about yeah. 50 horsepower higher than the, the Ford DFE that most teams were using, including Lotus. But it was heavy and it was really bulky underneath the car. So when you think about this flat V12 underneath the, uh, mm. the, 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 on the, the underneath of, of the car, if you try and run ground effect through that car, there's no way it's going to be as effective as it would be on something like the Lotus, which was pretty much perfectly smooth under there. The engine, the bulkheads, the um, or the cylinder heads, rather, the the exhaust mechanism all gets in the way of smooth airflow. So the um, Brabham didn't have the luxury of just doing a Force India and copying the Lotus 79. It wasn't an option. <laughs> alleged, alleged. Allegedly, yeah, of course, yeah. uh, they were heavily inspired by the, the Mercedes. Uh, but mm. uh, yeah, so they had to come up with an entirely new idea. And the, the BT46 itself before the fan car was quite interesting because to get around this weight problem, uh, Gordon Murray had the idea that they would run a car without any radiators. So it was the original oh zero God. side pod concept, like the, the Mercedes yes. of today or the Williams. Oh. Um, so they ran these these things like they were called heat exchangers on top of the the mm minimal side pods and the idea was that that would reduce a lot of weight and and so the car could be competitive unfortunately the car just overheated and and, uh, blew up i I have to say look this is a struggle i've had in the engineering world which is design engineers don't for some reason they've got a blind spot these guys who've gone to like loughborough university mathematics wizards can can do cad drawings you you couldn't believe they seem to have a blind spot for for overheating and for the the need for cooling, and when you're like just like a dumb dumb ex grunt who's sitting there saying to them, "Look, I'm telling you, I've used this stuff before. It's going to overheat. You need liquid cooling in here, uh, ideally, and if not, you at least need some way to get the heat away. You need fans blowing the hot air away from the thing you're trying to make work. And for whatever reason, they will not do cooling." unless they absolutely have to and one of the great examples was you know that mercedes beast i think 2016 in singapore and they're literally hacking bits out of the bodywork because they suddenly realize and i guarantee you there'll be some derrick in the design office seeing them hacking bits out of the bodywork who's like i told you i literally told you you needed more cooling so this is the ultimate version of it you know radiators for someone who, for people who don't know, they'll be circulating liquid, which will carry heat away, and then the movement of the air as they drive along cools that that air down. So the, the, you, you've got this engineer who's gone, well, they're heavy. We'll just do away with all of that, and unbelievably, it overheated. Yeah, I mean, who who could have thought that that, that could have been the, the end result of this? Uh, so the, the the car was launched in in seventy uh, seventy eight with conventional radiators. Mm. It was just too heavy to be competitive. But behind the scenes, Gordon Murray was working on this this fan car, and um, I think he might have taken inspiration from a. There was a a car in the Can Am series in the US, a sports car series called the um, the Chaparral Two J, and it was around seven or eight years before uh, the fan car uh, appeared, and it was a horrible looking thing. If you if you Google it, it's it's a big boxy. Yeah. It's like a, a an even worse version of a nineteen eighties Volvo. Yeah, you've, how, you've how sent me a picture of it, and it definitely looks like a student project. It is just a block of of white metal, and you can't see any of the rear part of it because it's basically got this box over it, which I'm assuming is acting as kind of the ground effect skirt. And then you've got two massive fans pushing the the air out. And this was like ten years previous. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I think it was around 1970 that that was launched. It had one season and was banned at the end of the season. Um, a lot of the other teams complained that it was kicking up 
dirt and rocks and things into their drivers' faces, and that's something we'll come back to mm. in terms of the Brabham and, and one of the the issues around it. But um, yeah, this 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 car, this Chaparral, was just horrible. It's if you've if you've seen the Simpsons episode where Homer gets the design, <laughs> yes, his own car, the Homer, it's as ugly as that, and and uh, yeah, just a, a real horrible thing. <laughs> but it did create a lot of downforce mm. using two fans that were powered by their own motor at the, at the rear of the car problem Brabham had is you can't just install a second engine to power a fan at the back of the car. Mm. The rules at the time stipulated that any fan that could be used for cooling had to be primarily for, for cooling. So, I mean, they were very clever. Brabham did design it so that over 50% of what the fan did was cool the engine. That's um, um, But yeah. the other 50% or 48% was for downforce. Okay, so, downforce. so let's paint a picture for the for the audio listeners here. If, if you search Brabham fan car, I mean, you, you'll see pretty quickly what the concept was. And it was like a giant cone fan just stuck on the end where the monkey seat it used to be. Oh, monkey seats have gone now, haven't they? That's, oh, how very early t- turbo hybrid era of me there. Uh, but underneath the rear wing, basically, this huge cone uh, with a giant fan. So I, I like the thinking that you know, even though primarily what they were trying to do was push the air out to create this this vacuum, they have to kind of, for the sake of it, make it help with cooling as well. But this car, if you if you if I'm piecing this together right, the the, the they launched that season. This is the one where you were saying they didn't have the radiators, uh, were struggling with cooling anyway. So okay, so at least they they had some cooling now. But they also had a giant fan. Can you imagine what the other teams were thinking when this giant fan turns up? Yeah, they weren't impressed. Uh, There were four teams that protested the car before uh, it even turned the wheel in Sweden. It was launched in in Sweden in 1978. Uh, They protested it. The governing body inspected the car, um, deemed that it was legal, and therefore Mm. it it raced. And it it, um, well, we'll come on to what it did in the race. But yeah, Yeah. it was it was legal. But I, I guess if we look back at Mercedes and Red Bull over the last couple of years. Something you, hear, you you constantly hear is it's not within the spirit of the regulations, mm. which means that um, yeah we, we wish we'd thought of that, um, but <laughs> yes. it, but it is legal. Uh, yeah. It's not within the spirit of it feeding us uh, flexible front wings, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so sort of the, 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 there's mm. you know there's a few examples we can point to. The probably the biggest one is the Frick hydraulic system uh, that was able to. I can't remember how all that worked now, but it basically helped them keep the car level through corners. Yeah. Mercedes car. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, throwing back to, to Brabham in the 1970s, they also designed uh, a pneumatic system within the car that would that would lower the car at um, at high speed. Uh, so so it did the same sort of thing. And um, other teams developed it. I think it was banned at the end of 1978 or 79. But yeah, I mean, th- this this Brabham team were you know hugely underfunded compared to Ferrari, for example. But they were really innovative. They had they were the first team to use carbon brakes and 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 discs. They were the first car to uh, first team to design a car using uh, computer aided design or CAD. Um, the first team to use computers to analyze data uh, uh, over a weekend at a, at a race. So they were they were pretty much ahead of their time. And they had some big hitters in the seventies and eighties. The team was owned by Bernie Eccleston. Um, they had Gordon Murray, as we've talked about. They had a, you know a, a list of luminaries who went on to great things. Charlie Whiting was was there as well. So, yeah, they were. Um, yeah, they were a really innovative team at the time. And um, in, the, in the race itself in Sweden, in qualifying, the car was so fast that Bernie Eccleston instructed Nicky Lauda uh, to, to slow the car down as, as much as possible. So they, uh, the two drivers were instructed to, 
fill it up with well the teams filled it up with fuel mm. ran hard tires and the drivers were told to lift off so wow. they didn't actually qualify in pole um job was a, a good one and uh, andretti got pole in the lotus lauda was second about seven tenths behind him but in the race it was it was a, i think lauda said afterwards it was embarrassingly easy how easy he won that race he won by 34 seconds mm. and was just coasting andretti's engine failed as as you know five out of six would have done in that yeah. era but but in any event he, there's no way he could have caught this car it was just leap years ahead of its time it's like the you know the fw14b williams or you know the, mm-hmm. the the red bull that was absolutely dominant the first season 2000 uh i want to say 2007 um but um yeah the it, the car was just light years ahead uh possibly gone too early there was 2007 you've gone too early you've gone way yeah, too 20, early 2010 yeah, 2010 is it 10? Yeah, 10, 2009 yeah, was right. Braun with the diffuser. Yeah, I, I, mm. that terrible era, very boring era, Formula <laughs> 1, that, that whole, that whole <laughs> you look back at the 70s. But yeah, it, it, um, so the car won easily and the, the drivers had to drive counterintuitively so that the harder you push it, uh, the faster it goes, the more grip it actually generates through the, um, mm. through the fan. So at a time when you should be lifting, going into a corner, you've got to bury the throttle and, and push it into the ground. So I'm interested, um, how was the fan governed like how how is it was it the more you did the throttle the harder the fan went yeah effectively mm. the the other yeah, the, the, the harder it spun and the more i think i did four four clutches within the, the fan mechanism itself it's really complicated and made from tank parts as a former military oh. person you might be interested in this no no uh, uh, but... tank regiment people are really they're genuinely weird and if you're listening don't email me i don't care i've had several tank regiment people tell me that they think a tank is better than a fighter bomber. That's the level of person in, and they, they will not be budged on that. If they can make a flying tank, I might be with them on that. But until that day, I'd, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it was an interesting piece of kit. Very, very clever. And uh, after the race, um, Mario Andretti claimed, I think probably egged on by his team boss, Chapman, that um, when he was following the Brabham fan car, there was rocks and dirt and all sorts of stuff. Oh, being yeah. Thrown it's a safety issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So safety issue. <laughs> uh, again, the car was legal. There was nothing wrong with the car. But this is where um, we see the first hint of Bernie Eccleston's big picture. So uh, 1978, Bernie Eccleston was appointed president of FOCA, the, basically the Teams Constructors Association. Oh, okay. Now, Bernie had big plans and he was going to see them through. And... Uh, being a, a dominant team owner might have thrown a bit of disharmony around uh, his own position or or put some uh, a conflict of interest in in, in his 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 uh, box if you like his inbox so bernie withdrew the car um after one race undefeated it's still the only f1 car in history to to be retired with a 100% success uh, success and, rate and without being forced to so the yeah, the team could have run it the yeah. team owner bernie eccleston voluntarily goes oh no that isn't in the spirit of the rules absolutely that's so interesting had any other team come up with that they might have like where were where were brabham in the championship at this point yeah they were they'd had um they had a pretty mediocre start to the year i think they were around seventh or something because the car was just too heavy it was too uncompetitive um but um yeah the 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 fan car would have changed everything and it it's really it's it's a shame in a sense that we never got to see how that design would have evolved mm. because Gordon Murray was already working on a, a new fan car for for nineteen seventy nine that apparently had two uh, you know multiple mm. um, two two different fans different speeds depending on what you know what you could do and the the thing about 
ground effect and the Lotus against the fan car. And the problem is that ground effect works well on fast corners. You'll you'll have seen mm. that in 2022 that you know that the cars are planted through fast corners, but really tricky through some slow corners. They're you know through hairpins and things. They're a bit a bit meh. The the that's because obviously the car is not going fast enough to generate enough downforce to push it into the ground in slow corners. The difference of the fan car is that oh, you, could, you could yes. keep it planted. You didn't. It didn't mm. matter. So um, the 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 downforce wasn't being generated by speed. It was being generated by an, an external force at the rear of the car. So it was in phenomenally fast through through fast. So corners. from a driving style point of view, even in a, a slow corner, you would want to get the speed off as quickly as as possible so nice and early probably in a straight line point it towards the corner get those revs up get the fan going and then you're basically on on train tracks and i think there was a a similar comments from you know sebastian vettel when he had the double diffuser so that was generating you know extra downforce at the rear and he he was accelerating at at points where other drivers were still breaking into a corner so it's fundamentally had to adapt his driving style to the way this car was able to to drive so for those guys it must have just been you know like a local go-kart track like an indoor track hit the corner get the speed down point it into the apex and just pin it like from way before the apex just bury it exactly the same and the the active suspension in the williams the fw14b that we mentioned earlier same same issue there that once mansell could you know had confidence in that he was he was unstoppable because the the car it's counterintuitive to plant it you know before the apex of the corner but you know it, it just worked it just sticks to the mm-hmm. ground and the fan car was was the same so you know instead of seeing aerodynamics develop through 1979 early 1980s and um you know gr- ground effect kind of become a thing and then become banned and then wings become more important if the if if that car hadn't been withdrawn who knows what direction f1 could have taken itself you know the mcmurty spearling going back to what we talked about at the start smashing the goodwood you know record by two seconds over an f1 car shows that a fan is still a really effective way to generate downforce so could we be could we have seen you know 20 cars with multiple fans on the rear one huge fan it would have been fascinating to see where (laughs) where the technology could have taken us and we never have had really that long era where you couldn't overtake because of the aerodynamics and the dirty air being generated it could have been a completely different formula and i've been whinging for the last six seven years here on missed apex about why is aerodynamics the most fundamental thing and and i've often wondered why given that everybody goes well the aerodynamics are ruining the following uh they're making the cars too planted and they're basically straightening out every corner in in formula one that's how good they've gotten but i don't think you can get rid of it because there is such a there is such an ingrained mentality of aerodynamics if you suddenly went no front wings no rear wings you'd have thousands of unemployed people in formula one like spiritually now you can't do that. And would it have been more interesting in F1 if it had gone down this ground effect uh, route? Or now as we go into the electric era, presumably we can have a, a motor on each wheel fairly soon. They're going to have some kind of motor on each wheel and you and you can derive a grip and direction change from there. Uh, and this is, this is the, the long battle with F1 tech, isn't it? As soon as someone has an innovation like that, the authorities have two choices. A, let it ride. And everybody then will copy that. So effectively, any innovation that you let ride, you're going, okay, that's now the direction of the sport. Or you you ban it. So so obviously they looked at the giant fan on the back and went, nope. 
<laughs> yeah, we're not having that. No. It, it's it, it's an interesting point you make about aerodynamics and how that became so important over the last couple of decades mm. in F1. And I, I think that the issue is that the teams write the rules, don't they? So the teams yeah. employ, as you say, yeah. hundreds of aerodynamicists and, and, and they want to keep them employed. And it's their hobby horse, isn't it? They want to see what's possible. And just because it's possible to, to create a car that's very grippy through aerodynamics doesn't necessarily mean it's, that we oh, should do it. I know. Um, it's, uh, there would be much more interesting ways. I think mechanical grip and big fat tires and you know a thousand horsepower engines will always have much more romanticism for me than yeah than something and, that that that's generating a huge amount of downforce through wings and, and you can't get within it, five seconds yeah of it. and it's invisible you can't see it you can't really hear it you just kind of you know like i feel for the the tech journalists you know matthew summerfield and uh scarbs and stuff and they're trying to do these beautiful drawings and it just it looks like ancient greek you know to us whereas i think we could get our head around more the fan car type innovations horsepower is a more tangible oh they generated more horsepower oh that's a bigger number than that whereas aerodynamics is is kind of a, a big mystery yeah it it, it is I, I wouldn't even pretend to understand how it works in the rain i kind of try and convince myself that i can see <laughs> what's going on through the vortexes that i'm looking at or vortices that i'm looking at but the truth is i it might as well be in in you know greek as you say but one the ground effect i think was banned at the end of 1979 and and the the key reason i think was that it was deemed to be too dangerous if if one of the skirts failed yeah. um the driver would appear plant his foot have no idea and have a huge accident and, it, it works um, until it suddenly doesn't yeah, it's yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Um, but in, in the Brabham fan car, there was quite a clever little innovation that that Gordon Murray put on the car, where he had a um, a gauge inside the car that was either you know the needle was either red or green, mm. and it was um, an altimeter that was installed in the car. So if the uh, if the gauge was in green, the car would, uh, the the, uh, the driver would know to keep it planted and if it was in red he'd know that one of the skirts had failed in the car and there wouldn't be enough downforce to get him around the corner when he arrived there so wow it was it was um yeah a, a sort of early innovation again and, and trying to keep the drivers safe but uh, ultimately to no avail yeah you know the the chase for ever ever more downforce never more lap time the, the the one regulation change that still makes me so angry is the 2017 one because i feel like this was an internet derived change and if you remember they just had the turbo hybrid era and um actually the racing wasn't wasn't too bad except that we had the dominance of mercedes and the unreliability was a bit of a hark back to the past you know cars were sort of conking out left right and center especially the the renos but the the they had slowed the cars down significantly the cars were heavier and the internet and i'm probably going to blame specifically reddit for no reason at all just massively kicked off these cars are slow it's pathetic they're no quicker than uh, uh gp2 i think it was at the time like it was starting to get close and there was just a, an outcry and they changed the regulations in 2017 okay no we'll make these the fastest formula one cars ever and it was a bit it was rubbish. It was just like, why have you, why do you need the stop clock? Why is that so important uh, as a viewer? Uh, but it was, it was a knee jerk reaction change for the, for the worse. Curse you internet. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree mm. that um, making them, oh, they're going to be three seconds a lap faster next year. I don't care. I want to see close yeah. racing. I want to see the field bunched up. I want to see cars moving around a bit. I want to see the drivers at work. I don't care that an aerodynamicist can build a car that can drive upside down on the ceiling. That's not what we're <laughs> racing. You know, I want to see cars going, you know, at it mm. uh, through Eau Rouge, Radion. You know, I, I want to see excitement. Uh, I don't want to see 
a, a stopwatch and go, oh, oh yes, it's two and a half seconds faster than it was. Like I don't care about any of that. <laughs> it's the same with you look back at the um, the uh, 2007, 2008 cars. You know, they were so much smaller than what we've got today. We've basically got huge sports cars, WEC, you know, um, yeah. LMP one type cars, just with with uh, with no lid on them. Um, and you see them side by side. That those when uh, do you remember Alonso did the demonstration at was it um, was it Abu Dhabi? It wasn't Abu Dhabi. Was it uh, oh gosh, where was it? The, of the 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 R twenty five, the um, two thousand and five Renault. Oh, Renault. Yes, I do. Yeah, and, and that was a bit of a PR mistake because everyone like looked at that and went, "Ooh, <laughs> can we not have that again?" Yeah, look yeah. at that. Listen to that. Was it the V ten as well? Yes, V10 it engine, was V ten. Yeah. yeah. Right in if it wasn't, please. Um, but yeah, no, it was, and it was beautiful. It changed direction so quickly, and it just looked the absolute bee's knees. And mm. um, and then you look at what we've got today, and it's yeah, there's, there's a bit of variety between the cars, and it's more interesting to look at now than it was last season, for example. But yeah. are the cars really more exciting to watch on on TV in particular? Oh no. yeah, maybe not on TV, but also it has to be the right track nowadays. So they they do look great around, say. The Tilkadromes, basically, which used to get slated all the time, but now they seem to be the ones. Like, if we could have uh, Malaysia and Shanghai and the Indian Grand Prix and the Korean Grand Prix, all of those those tracks would really suit these modern cars now. But that we've gone back. We've had Portimao and uh, yeah. and uh, and Imola coming back. We've gone in the wrong direction for these cars. But I would say go back and watch some of the the two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight seasons and watch Alonso and, and Hamilton going at it and Raikkonen in the mix there as well uh, particularly uh let's say 2007 no 2008 Spa that was quite a good one to go back and, and watch Hamilton versus Raikkonen those cars were dancing around each other and the tracks look massive it's like when you go back to primary school and you, you know the, the size of the chairs is so different you look back and you go the cars are teeny they're like micro machines yeah, if you that that two thousand seven series was brilliant. Sorry, that season was brilliant. Yeah. Two thousand eight was brilliant. Twenty twelve was also a, a, a good season. But the um, yeah, if you if you get a chance to go to a motor museum, for example, and um, that is a good one at Monaco. If you're if you're not knocking around in Monaco with, oh. with an afternoon to spare. <laughs> Look, you're, you're in the continent now. Um, I, well, you, you know, could... we nearly, well, I nearly drove through Monaco out of curiosity, but because I always whinge about um, whinge about Monaco as a Grand Prix track, I was like, oh, I can't then go. But from a history point of view, you go, oh, yeah, remember Monaco when it used to be relevant and entertaining in Formula One, but I didn't want to be seen to be endorsing modern races at Monaco. Specifically, that's the reason we didn't go through it. What, just a, a point of principle, you've, you've, you've <laughs> yeah, literally exactly. cut your nose off to spite your face there. Um, yes, but I, but I have my the... principles, unless you have money, in which case I'll abandon them quickly. <laughs> Quite right, is it? Like the old adage, there's two good reasons to marry, you know. It's, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, 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 when you see the, the, the new cars compared mm. to the old cars, almost side by side, it, it's breathtaking to look at them. And I think it's just such a such a shame. I mean, I, I know I'm harking back to an era in the 70s when the cars were, were pretty big, but the tires were, you know, 25 feet wide it was it was a different thing and um i was reading something the other day about um um the the the, the turbo the turbo era engines when they were first introduced um and there was one team that had 600 engines in a season which Blimey. um they weren't always reliable but i didn't think they were that unreliable that wow. it could have been a typo i hope it was a typo but it definitely e- even 60 engines. would be would be a lot but look uh before we turn into old men shouting at the clouds, because I didn't realise it was going to become old F1 versus new F1, 
there, there's a lot of plus points now, which is obviously safety for, for the one part. I do like that. There is close racing. If you look at the field spread, it is a lot lower. Reliability is better. So you're not robbed of, of just, you know, suddenly having six cars on track, you know, an hour into the Grand Prix, which has literally happened. Um, there's less rubbish gravel. So you don't just get people make a slight mistake and be beached forever. <laughs> you're going to email me about that feedback at mistapex.net. Uh, but this has been, you know, really insightful. And make sure you go and, and Google the two things people need to go and search up are the Brabham bt46b or just the 1978 brabham fan car will get you there that horrible boxy thing what was that that was the, the chaparral 2j chaparral 2j that's well worth looking at and uh, and in general go and follow jeff o'boyle on twitter have you got have you snagged the jeff o'boyle handle yeah i'm still uh elon musk has still uh, mercilessly locked me out of my original account oh. um because i've forgot the password um but yeah it's i think it's jeff o'boyle one at twitter.org we'll put a link in the show notes below and make sure in the youtube comments just it play hunt the mistake and just pick up any little tiny errors jeff might have made uh, jeff thanks for playing podcasting with us i always enjoy a bit of a look back in the past even if it does inevitably turn into two old men ranting and yelling at clouds uh, thank you very much for having me spanners really appreciate it <laughs> A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks, Banners. Thanks, Jeff. The thing I found most interesting with that discussion was the fact that the Brabham team owner, one Bernard Charles Eccleston, kiboshed the BT46B even though it was ruled to be legal, just to keep the other teams on side while he effectively took over the sport. Who said winning was everything? Anyway, it's now time to turn our attention to things that go huff and puff. James Wingfield is a committed Mr Apex patron, a serious caterer and racer and winner, and a competitive sim racer. He's also an F1 engineer, and in a previous life he was a Cosworth engine specialist directly involved in developing that company's blown diffuser strategies. Matt Trumpets and Kyle Power caught up with him and gave him the third degree about what he and his team did, how they did it, and just why the FIA decided to kill it off. Hi, I'm Matt 
Trumpets, and welcome back to Forbidden F1 Fruit. We are once again going to discuss exhaust-blown diffusers, and once again joining me today is none other than Kyle Power, who in addition to being a driver analyst, is also a proper mad scientist-type engineer, harnessing the fundamental powers of the universe for what I assume is probably not evil. Welcome back, Kyle. Hey, Matt. How's it going? That's going well. Yeah, so very good to be back doing this and looking forward to continuing our conversation from the from the first show. And we should probably explain at this point, the reason we are revisiting this topic is a lurking expert, super awesome special guest, James Wingfield, reached out. And in addition to being very quick in a caterum and not too bad in iRacing, I have to say, he actually worked on these strategies at Cosworth when they were being used in Formula One. So before we bring him in, why don't you real quick tell us what exactly we were talking about? Because as we all know, my memory is less than perfect. (laughs) So yes, for those of you who weren't listening to the first segment, which there will be a link in the description below, you should go and check that out, that we were exploring some of the uh, banned technologies in Formula One. And we started off with one of our favorite ones, which is exhaust blown diffusers. And now the F1 teams were utilizing this lots of what which was wasted energy coming out the back of the exhausts and they're blowing it into the diffuser to create copious amounts of downforce and they're applying all sorts of crazy wizardry and tricks with engine mapping cylinder cutting hot and cold blowing which we discuss in quite a lot of detail in the previous segment so if you haven't listened to that go back and have a listen but someone who was listening to that and was probably getting angry and shouting at the screen was our very special guest james so uh james how wrong were we in that last show yeah hi guys uh first of all it's great to be here i'm big fan of the show listened for quite a long time so to get my moment on the on the show is great um and yeah to answer your question i yeah listen listening to that particular episode uh keenly and uh i was really impressed actually a lot of the information was really accurate um not too many things were wrong but uh there's always a little bit of um knowledge that doesn't quite make it to the to the forefront oh good so in particular um so we originally sort of thought one of the things that drew us to this topic was the crazy sound generated with the off-throttle hot blowing what the teams were doing and i maybe may have erroneously thought that the sound was to do with them igniting fuel in the exhaust which is creating this crazy sound but that might not be the case uh yeah i think there's probably a little bit more behind that so i mean ultimately obviously the sound is coming from the explosions that are happening inside the engine uh but the the real variation in note i think had a lot more to do with the the timing of those explosions and the effectively the the effective fire order firing order that uh that the engines were running as much as just burning the fuel in the tailpipes okay Okay, so I'm going to immediately ask you to explain that a little bit more uh, for me, not being as much of an expert as Kyle. How can you change the order that the cylinders fire in? Because aren't they all connected and have to run in the same order? Yeah, so um, we had V8s at the time, obviously in Formula 1, 2.4 litre V8s. Now, the, there's a definite mechanical link through the crankshaft and the, and the arrangement of those eight cylinders, which enforces the firing order to be um, whatever the, each of the engine manufacturers decided it to be. Um, but that only really applies when you're in eight-cylinder mode. Uh, and there was one element of the mapping that was open to us all at the time, uh, and I think probably still is to this day, but you can drop cylinders. So you don't have to fire all eight cylinders all of the time. 
Um, and that was really where the, and it's not a loophole because it was being used already for torque control, but that was really where the um, kind of expansion for hot blowing and, and the kind of opportunity to really develop hot blowing came from. Okay, so that's really interesting. So you mentioned torque control, and I presume that sort of links to what we hear sort of engineers say on the radio, all sorts of torque demand. So I presume that's when the driver's got a certain throttle position on, say they've got 20% throttle, but they don't necessarily want 20% power. So you'd cut some cylinders to deliver the power that they want at that time. Uh, kind of. Um, so the, the driver is obviously controlling the car, and as part of that, he's controlling the engine. Now he has a limited uh, limited scope of information he can provide to the engine, which pretty much is just through his right foot. So as he puts his foot down, the the more throttle pedal he applies, the more torque he is after from the from the engine. Um, but what we do have in in Formula One or had then, and and obviously even in road cars these days, is electronic throttles. Uh, we've we've moved on somewhat from the old days of a cable between the the driver's foot and the throttle mechanism or blade or barrel or um, whatever the throttle valve was where it used to be entirely tied to the pedal position and now as the driver puts his foot down that then sends a torque demand to the engine which is slightly different to a throttle position so then the engine and the ecu and the control unit can determine how to deliver that torque demand Um, there are some rules and the fia particularly around this hot blowing period were very interested in how the PU or the engine manufacturers were were using both throttle position and generally torque control because they were, I don't know if they were trying to clamp down particularly on hot blowing, but it was, there, there was a lot of movement around that at the time. Um, and everybody was, was very interested in how the throttles were being used. And it was something that was changing rapidly, race by race even. There were sort of slightly different control strategies at play. So I'm going to, first of all, have a laugh because I swear I recognized exact words from the FIA rule book when you were talking about the driver being in full control of the car. It's like they beat that into you whenever you were going to talk about something to the press. But I, I want to understand here, because my memory of the rule is that there has to be a linear relationship between the throttle position and the torque being delivered to the wheels is is and you're saying that that wasn't the case then or that there was just some some allowable play in what you could do based on the situation uh the mapping you said that you were using for that particular track um it it doesn't have to be linear uh and i think even what is it probably 10 years more than 10 years ago now but uh I think the phrase that the FIA used was monotonically increasing. Effectively, for 1% throttle pedal, you'd have you'd have a certain amount of engine torque. For 2%, it had to be more torque, but it didn't have to be twice as much torque. Um, so as the driver was putting his foot down, the engine torque had to be continually increasing. Um, and that wasn't really so much around hot blowing or anything like that. It was it was more around torque. Uh, it wasn't so much around hot blowing. It was more around traction control because there potentially would be a loophole where if the driver had his foot anywhere between kind of naught and 50% throttle, you could, you could play games with the delivery of the engine. Then in theory, I suppose you could have an element of launch control or, or torque or um, traction control creeping in. That's really interesting. So that brings us on quite nicely to our original subjects of, we were just talking about drivers being on the throttle 
So with the exhaust blowing, we're talking about drivers being off the throttle and on the way into the corner. So the whole point and just a mini recap is you want to keep gas flowing through the exhaust whilst the driver has got no torque demand or throttle on at all. So you're saying that you cut cylinders to help you guys achieve that? I mean, how did you how did you originally sort of go about achieving that when you had to first start setting this up? So partly that's an easy one to answer because it was already in place. Um, cutting cutting cylinders wasn't new for blowing. It was already in place. Um, and even having the throttles slightly open when the driver had zero pedal position is nothing new. That that was already already happening and has always happened in Formula One, really. So there's there's a little element of it being just a development of what was already happening. Um, and it predominantly came from the team saying, look, we we would like to use the exhaust flow. Um, I think you you previously talked a little bit about the the kind of the curtain of that exhaust flow being useful to prevent the tire squirt getting into the diffuser. And, and I think that was certainly the the application back in 2011. Um, that was very much the apl- application that was being used. Uh, a bit like when you walk past a shop and they've got the hot air blowing down just in front of the doorway, it, it creates a bit of a seal between the cold air outside and the and the warmer air inside the shop. So that that jet of air was very useful to them, and that was really how it started to develop. And of course, it started with cold blowing, later moving into hot blowing. I, I want to hear about the evolution of why you went from cold to hot. But before we do, the question I got to ask is: Did you find that using different combinations of cylinders make any realistic difference in the amount of downforce or the amount of uh, seal that you were getting with either the cold or the hot blowing? In other words, did you say, well, we're already cutting cylinders two, four, and six. What if we did two, three, and seven? Do we get a better result? Did it come about like that? Or was it just sort of what you already had going on that, that made for these different sounds? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. So the the cutting of cylinders it it was already in place because fundamentally these engines are designed to produce a lot of horsepower near enough let's call it 800 horsepower at the time it was about there there were thereabouts so if you've got 100 horsepower per cylinder and and the engines are fully tuned to deliver that high airflow rate that high fuel flow rate what you tend to find is that when you ask each cylinder to deliver only a couple of horsepower at really low torque demands as we're now calling it um, they become very inconsistent. And sometimes the driver might ask for 3% torque or maybe 3% pedal and a very small amount of torque, but the engine can over or under deliver because each injector is flowing such a small amount of fuel that it's hard to meter accurately. The throttles themselves might have a little bit of air leakage through them. So what you find is it's actually far more um, consistent to have fewer cylinders working a bit harder than all of the cylinders trying to work really, really gently. Um, and that's really where it came from. So the idea of dropping, let's say, from eight cylinders to four cylinders uh, was already in place. And it then depended on which four cylinders that you're firing to to get the most out of particularly hot blowing. Obviously, with cold blowing, none of the cylinders are firing because the, t- the torque demand is so low that all of the injection has turned off, at which point you can open the throttle fully. And the engine is now a nice big air pump, which I think is something that you covered already in the previous show. Um, and you can flow more air through an engine with the, with the throttles wide open than you can with them closed, but it, it it's all it's flowing through all eight cylinders. So there's there's no real effect of different cylinders being fired in cold blowing. That only comes to comes into play for for hot blowing. So for the hot blowing, um, 
So in all of this, I presume the main goal was to achieve maximum gas flow rate out of the back of that exhaust. So you just wanted to get the, mo- the, the most amount of gas at a higher energy potential as possible throughout through through the exhaust. So why would you cut cylinders to achieve that? Surely you 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 just want full bananas. Just let's 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 use all eight cylinders, throttles wide open, cut the ignition, force loads of fuel through, and basically have huge explosions in the exhaust to create loads of gas. Like why wasn't that the case? Yeah, well that's that's another good point. And and it kind of is the case. So the trouble is that you end up with loads of torque being applied. So as the driver's asking for less less torque, if you're fully firing all eight cylinders, you've got 800 horsepower coming through the rear wheels and the driver's going into a corner trying to slow the car down um there's an element that you can tune it out with the brakes if the rear brakes are really meaty and can deal with that but they tend to overheat very quickly um and you'll sometimes hear the drivers complaining of push and that's effectively what that is that's when the engine is delivering a bit more torque than they would like it to in that engine braking zone or the corner entry zone and they'll say that the engine engine is pushing a bit because it's actually delivering a bit too much torque um, it's great for the diffuser um, in this instance anyway when we go back to the kind of blown diffuser era but uh, not so useful for the fundamentals of racing a car around a track okay that's a, that's super interesting so so yeah so you'd cut half the cylinders you'd force some fuel through because it the hot the cold blowing started and as you said cold blowing pretty much turned the engine into an air pump just pumping air through whereas hot blowing you'd managed to force some fuel through the cylinders through the engine and then that ignites on the hot exhaust obviously creating more gas flow you can only do that to a certain extent and i presume also as well fuel consumption goes through the roof at a certain point if you're pushing too much fuel through through the engine so why um so sort of why and how was the tran the transition over to sort of hot blowing was this something that you guys knew was already sort of possible or were you sort of reacting to what other teams were doing? So I think the general consensus is amongst us just norm, normal fans who are not on the inside, was this is sort of a, a kind of a Renault, Red Bull sort of developed thing? Or was this something that you guys were fully aware and playing around with anyway at Cosworth? Um, there, yeah, the engine manufacturers all, all brought it to the table at different times. Um, and honestly, I would probably say that we were a bit late to the to the party in that one with uh, Cosworth. Um Cold blowing is something that we were aware of and doing. Hot blowing, we were kind of aware of it. And I remember, I think it was the 2011 track test um, where the first on-track running was done with hot blowing for some of the other teams. And immediately, obviously, our trackside guys came back saying, hang on a minute, this sounds weird, much as you were talking about and the general public were talking about. So, yeah, at that point, we we worked out that there was another another element of this blowing game um and it was time for us to kind of investigate that and and deliver something equivalent so that's fascinating so it's a nice it's a nice day you're sitting at lunch having your lunch and somebody runs in and was like right we need to start doing this and looking into this so how did it come about for you guys where do you start you have an engine you've basically been sold right we need to start forcing fuel through this and igniting in in the exhaust um did you have to make any sort of architectural, actual physical changes to the engine, or is this all just sort of software and sort of mapping based? Uh, a bit of both, I suppose. Now, the, the big problem here is we were operating under an engine freeze back then. So 2011, yeah, 2011, 2012 is when this was really happening. Um, so the engine was technically tied down, but that doesn't mean that every single component was running to its limit all of the time. So 
there was an element of we know that we can do something here to improve the air exit velocity so let's try it on the dyno see what it does and then keep an eye on how different components start start surviving or or maybe not in some cases um, and work out what what the weak links are and, and if you can cover those up with a calibration change great if you need a a mechanical change then that's where it gets a bit tricky because if you ask the FIA to introduce a new exhaust valve maybe because it's getting too hot then they will consider that and then say really <laughs> do you need to do this because you've actually got a failure or are you pushing the limits perhaps um, and worse than that they even then send that request around to all of the other engine manufacturers to say by the way Cosworth have just asked for a new exhaust valve so you have to be very genuine in in what what is actually a failure and what's perhaps self-imposed or, or self-created um so the, in terms of the hardware there were definitely limits um and so we went out really with a calibration change and at the time calibrations were pretty well unlocked um they've become more and more tied down i think over this period uh which is which is something that that the FIA were getting hotter and hotter on excuse the pun um as as this blowing period became became more kind of sensitive i suppose so if you wouldn't mind just telling me what exactly you mean by calibrations because there's a lot of there's maps and modes in this so when you're talking about calibrations what specifically are you referring to so the entire way the engine is run um if we go back to what i said earlier with the torque demand so the driver says i want a bit of torque from the engine i've put my foot at a certain point on the on the throttle it's really then the ECU that decides how to deliver that torque. Now, it might be that you give 100% actual throttle position, but you change your ignition angle and you create a later uh, burn period in, in the cylinder. Or it could be that you change the number of cylinders that are firing. You can do all these kind of things within the calibration. So obviously, when you're on the straight, you're full throttle. You pretty much just ask the engine to give it everything. But when you're in this entry phase into a corner and the, and the driver's only at a little bit of throttle position or maybe zero, then you have different opportunities to um, increase the exhaust flow rate and reduce the torque delivery, which was the, the big game at the time. And just a quick follow up. Is this calibration a lengthy, complicated and difficult thing that you wanted to do as little as possible? Or is this because I, what I'm understanding is you could essentially you could sort of tailor the torque demand to the driver and also potentially the track, or is this something that you might have to do on a weekly or by, or I guess back then a bi-weekly basis, because we didn't have races every week, or is this just something that was done generally at the beginning of the beginning of the season and mostly left alone? Um, it wouldn't really be tailored to the driver. It would be, so Cosworth, I think we had eight power units running at every race in four different teams and they would all be running pretty much the same calibration there may be very small differences because you know that the williams car has a slightly higher inlet temperature or lower inlet temperature or something so there may be a little bit of team to team but pretty much they're all the same um and in terms of how frequently they're changed you can change them very frequently but it's it's up to us to ensure that we're delivering a reliable power unit so you don't want to be you don't want to be playing games and trying things at the track so anything you're trying is done in the factory beforehand and you need to run it on for a lengthy period of time to make sure that you are confident it's reliable before you send it to the to the track and and let it loose in front of millions of people watching on TV. Hmm. So that's interesting you say about the calibration. So in theory, you could almost sort of 
rig certain parameters that you'd so you don't want to be 100 percent. oh it's calibrated to sort of 60 this if i'm mr fia this sounds like an absolute headache and a nightmare to try to police some of it because as you say you could maybe try to it's kind of wading into sort of traction control sort of areas it sort of could be but i've got a bit of a question so if it's dictated these calibrations and sort of the parameters and basically operating parameters of the engine you said you were supplying several different teams so would this come from the team would william say we want our engine to operate in this sort of window or i believe you were, you, were you supplying catering at the time the tony fernando what is catering or lotus i can't remember at the time because when i stood by the side of the track in 2011 at silverstone that was the round where they tried to on the behest of ferrari they tried to stop people hot blowing because ferrari couldn't do it and spat the dummy basically so the faa had tried to stop them for that one round but me standing by the side of the track all the cars you could kind of hear it going on a little bit apart from one car where it was so loud and so obvious and that was the caterums which i thought were running a cosworth at the time and they sounded totally different from all other cars so would they for instance come to you and be like we still want to kind of do this or we, we, we want to run the engine totally differently. And would you accept those requests? Uh, it was a little bit more driven the other way in many ways. So I think the idea of blowing and improving the amount, improving the effectiveness of that blowing from cold to hot, et cetera, was, was a request from the team because it was a team performance improvement. It didn't make the engine faster, but it made the car faster. So that initially came from the team. But once we started developing it, if you then start, expelling air that's hundreds of degrees straight into the, the sides of the diffuser it's then on the teams to make sure that the parts can survive so the the carbon diffusers initially were really struggling and, and they ended up with metallic inserts and heat shields and things like that so it's also back on the team a little bit of if if we as Cosworth say you can have this it may be that they can't actually utilize it um, and, I, and I honestly don't remember back then any of the teams using it and not using it specifically uh, but it would have been available to all of them if they wanted it. Um, I think it was probably 2012 that we were more into the hot blowing um, rather than 2011. And at that point, Caterham wasn't the Cosworth supplier. So, well, sorry, Cosworth wasn't the supplier to Caterham. So that may have been a, a Renault engine that you were listening to then. Um, but definitely the the Marussia was running hot blowing with um, with us in that year. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so 2011, it was mainly red bull and mclaren and and in the first clip of the well the, the first show that we did about this we included a clip from youtube when and you could hear the difference between the mclaren running the mercedes engine and the red bull running the renault engine it was very very different so the caterham yes probably was running the renault at the time so the fa then moved the exhaust positions for 2012 and to take advantage of the coanda effect and this is probably more where the hot blowing comes in so this is where sort of Cosworth you guys sort of ramped up your involvement then which is um, really interesting so so was that much of a challenge so this rule set changed between 2011 and 2012 you went more to sort of hot blowing over the season there is an engine freeze and we've kind of touched on this earlier saying that you might need to make reliability inverted commas improvements um was it much of a challenge during that winter saying like because you you had like a mission objective. You knew you needed to try to increase gas flow sort of through through the engine via hot blowing. Was that much of a challenge? Did you have room to make these reliability adjustments from, you know, from one season to the other? Was it possible to make any adjustments and improve it from the lessons that you'd learned in 2011? 
Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, remember that these engines are built for performance, and as part of that, they have to be durable. When you go to Monza, you end up with, I think, 30, 40 seconds of full throttle time. So the, the engine can survive that long of, of absolute full throttle. And I think it's now the same, tends to be the same at uh, Silverstone as well, actually, where there's a, an extended full throttle time. So when we're talking about a relatively short period of time in each braking zone, um, you can have the engine producing heat in the exhaust and it's not too bad because it, it doesn't heat soak. Uh, you generate a bit of heat but then you've got another straight where it settles down to what's more normal again. So there was an element that we could just turn it on and make it, uh, and it survived. Um, obviously, we had limits to stay within, and if those limits weren't there in terms of hardware limits, we could have pushed it further. So if, if the FIA hadn't stopped the main effectiveness by by repositioning the exhaust and development had continued in that area, we'd probably be now sat in a position where the exhaust valves can can deal with thousands and thousands of degrees of temperature consistently and the engines would have just developed down whichever path is available um back then as i say we 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 went from cold blowing on eight cylinder full cut to hot blowing with with cylinders fired um and that in itself took a bit of work because the and if i if i take a slight step into the the world of crank dynamics now um bear with me spanners i know you love you love all this um but the the natural mechanism for reducing from eight cylinders down to four cylinders at the time was to run not as a v8 or sorry not as a v4 but as a straight four so when you cut four cylinders the the smoothest way to do that and continue with torque delivery to the engine was to fire all of the left hand cylinders or all of the right hand cylinders but not any two on each side which is really good for crank for crank dynamics and for sort of smooth running and, and good endurance but then when you think about how the hot blowing works, if you then turn on hot blowing and you're now firing the four cylinders on one side of the engine only, then the diffuser is going to be energized on one side and not at all on the other, which would have all sorts of odd effects for the car side. So so the first real thing for us to get hold of was, hang on a minute, we now have to deliver high hot flow exhaust on both sides of the engine, which was a, which was a change to what we've done before. I just have a quick question. I had thought that for hot blowing, the fuel went into the exhaust before it was ignited, but you mentioned firing cylinders. Were you actually creating torque on the crankshaft and igniting fuel in the, in the, in the, with the piston in the chamber itself, or was the fuel being ignited only in, in the exhaust? Uh, the, the fuel, the only injectors on the engine were in the inlet tracked so the the fuel is coming in through the inlet valve into the cylinder and then the only spark you've got is in the cylinder so you are generating positive torque from those cylinders which is which is why the torque demand was important because you don't want to deliver too much um so if you delay the spark as late as you can then it it tends to explode beyond the point where it's making effective power so obviously that then puts a lot of heat straight into the exhaust pipe and that high level of heat makes the air very less dense very much less dense so your flow rate increases even more so it's really sensitive to burning late in the cycle but fundamentally it still has to burn and explode in the cylinder and therefore you end up with in this in this strange condition a negative effect of positive torque being produced okay that's absolutely fascinating i would love to spend all night talking to you on this but i'm quite aware that we're running out of time so one of my final questions to you would be from an engineer's point of view and you're sort of working on this 
was this a fun thing to be involved in or was this a royal pain in the backside where you like when your superiors or somebody comes to you and said right we need to develop more strategies for this was it a groan or was it oh good this is something cool to get my teeth stuck into oh no this was amazing um i think most engineers love we, we all go to work we all love to make a difference and this was a real exciting time as a as a sort of engine engineer where you could really bring a lot of performance to the table in a way that's quite new and an innovative way that um takes a bit of different thinking so no it was really exciting and there were there weren't any rules to follow in many ways there wasn't a well-trodden path it was a a case of we think there's something to go after we can hear that some of the other engines sound a bit weird go and find out why and, and make the best engine you can so it was great from from my personal perspective and I think all of the engine guys were, were really enjoying that. Um, it's a shame to some extent that it got clamped down on, but obviously that always happens and there's always something else to go and go and hunt after separately. So um, as we all know, you'll spend everything you've got as an F1 team and a bit more probably. So we'll just keep looking, spending just as much time and effort and hard work on on whatever comes next. Well, thank you very much for coming and talking to us about this. I hope you will consider coming back maybe and answering some more engine related questions in the future yeah of course it's been uh, it's been great fun and um yeah keep keep putting out all the all the great content that you do because it's um it's exciting and it's nice to listen to from from the outside as a i wouldn't i would hesitate to say an expert but certainly i've got a little bit more inside knowledge so listening into to what you pick up on and and what's more general general and what's more sort of publicly known is, is always really interesting great is there anything you want to plug before we head off um, well, I, I guess, as you can see from my background here, I, and you mentioned earlier on, I, I race a Catron myself. So, uh, in fact, that's how I got into the podcast, because I used to be a race instructor with a certain Mr. Philpot, who, who you may know. Um, and I was following him and he he started talking about the podcast. So that's how I how I got involved. And um, yeah, I, I do a lot of that whenever I can. Um, fitting it in around work isn't always easy, but it's it's really good fun. And um, yeah, I've got plenty of social media channels. So by all means, have a look on uh, Instagram or YouTube. We've even got a Discord channel. So James Wingfield Racing on any of those. It'd be great to have uh, have people come and have a look at the content I've got out there. Um, and even a few kind of engineering-based setup help videos on, on YouTube. So have a look and uh, let, me, let me know what you think. Well, thank you very much. Kyle, where can we find you? I lurk on the Twitters every now and then. So that's KylePowerF1 on Twitters. And... Uh, I have a, a very underwhelming YouTube channel, which isn't as good as James as James is, um, unfortunately. So there are a few eye racing things and something from my previous sort of um karting experiences, but mainly I hang around on a on a Twitter. So if you want to see some angry ramblings at times, go and check me out on there. Great. And I'm always at Matt PT55 on whatever social media you care to look for me for. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Well, you learn something new every day. I always thought it was just a matter of the harder you press the pedal, the faster you went. But apparently not. Thanks, Trumpets, and thanks, Kyle, and thanks, James. It's amazing to be able to talk to someone who was there and hands-on during that whole development process. His insider knowledge and insights are really priceless. That's about it for this week. Next week, you'll be in the company of another of Mr. Apex's favourite uncles. That's right, Uncle Joe Saywood is returning to the shed with spanners to discuss and dissect the F1 season just passed, the one that's about to engulf us, 
and all the rumours, gossip and speculation that make F1 so much fun. Until then, as Spanners always says, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 